Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the Beatle. The Beatle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Chapter 46. The Sudden Stopping. As we were leaving the house, a constable gave the inspector a note. Having read it, he passed it to me. It was from the local office. Message received that an Arab with a big bundle on his head had been noticed loitering around the neighborhood of St. Pancras Station. He seemed to be accompanied by a young man who had the appearance of a tramp. Young man seemed ill. They appeared to be waiting for a train, probably to the north. Shall I advise detention? I scribbled on the flyleaf of the note. Had them detained. If they have gone by train, had a special in readiness. In a minute, we were again in the cab. I endeavored to persuade Lessingham and Atherton to allow me to conduct the pursuit alone, in vain. I had no fear of Atherton succumbing, but I was afraid for Lessingham. What was more, almost than the expectation of his collapse, was the fact that his looks and manner, his whole bearing, 
so eloquent of the agony and agitation of his mind, was beginning to tell upon my nerves. A catastrophe of some sort I foresaw. Of the curtain's fall upon one tragedy we had just been witnesses. That there was worse, much worse, to follow I did not doubt. Optimistic anticipations were out of the question. That the creature we were chasing would relinquish the prey uninjured, no one, after what we had seen and heard, could, by any possibility, suppose. Should a necessity suddenly arise from prompt and immediate action, that Lessingham would prove a hindrance rather than a help, I felt persuaded. But since moments were precious and Lessingham was not to be persuaded to allow the matter to proceed without him, all that remained was to make the best of his presence. The great arch at St. Pancras was in darkness. An occasional light seemed to make the darkness still more visible. The station seemed deserted. I thought at first that there was not a soul about the place, that our errand was in vain, that the only thing for us to do was to drive to the police station and to pursue our inquiries there. But as we turned towards the booking office, our footsteps ringing out clearly through the silence and the night, a door opened, a light shone out from the room within, and a voice inquired, "'Who's that?' "'My name's Champnell. "'Has a message been received from me from the Limehouse Police Station?' "'Step this way.' "'We stepped that way into a snug enough office "'of which one of the railway inspectors was apparently in charge. "'He was a big man with a fair beard. "'He looked me up and down as if doubtfully. "'Lessingham he recognized at once. "'He took off his cap to him. "'Mr. Lessingham, I believe?' "'I am Mr. Lessingham. Have you any news for me?' I fancied by his looks that the official was struck by the pallor of the speaker's face, and by his tremulous voice. I am instructed to give certain information to a Mr. Augustus Champnell. I am Mr. Champnell. What's your information? With reference to the Arab about whom you have been making inquiries, a foreigner dressed like an Arab, with a great bundle on his head, took two single thirds for Hull by the Midnight Express. Was he alone? It is believed that he was accompanied by a young man of very disreputable appearance. They were not together at the booking office, but they had been seen together previously. A minute or so after the Arab had entered the train, this young man got into the same compartment. They were in the front wagon. Why were they not detained? We had no authority to detain them, nor any reason. Until your message was received a few minutes ago, we at this station were not aware that inquiries were being made for them. You say he booked to Hull. Does the train run through to Hull? No, it doesn't go to Hull at all. Part of it's the Liverpool and Manchester Express, and part of it's for Carlisle. It divides at Derby. The man you're looking for will change either at Sheffield or at Cutworth Junction, and go on to Hull by the first train in the morning. There's a local service. I looked at my watch. You say the train left at midnight? It's now nearly five and twenty past. Where is it now? Nearing St. Albans. It's due there at 12.35. Would there be time for a wire to reach St. Albans? Hardly. And anyhow, there will only be enough railway officials about the place to receive and dispatch the train. They'll be fully occupied with their ordinary duties. There won't be time to get the police there. You could wire to St. Albans to inquire if they were still in the train. That could be done, certainly. I'll have it done at once, if you like. Then where's the next stoppage? Well, they're at Luton at 1251, but that's another case of St. Albans. 
You see, there won't be much more than 20 minutes by the time you've got your wire off, and I don't expect there'll be many people awake at Luton. At these country places, sometimes there's a policeman hanging about the station to see the express grow through, but on the other hand, very often there isn't. And if there isn't, probably at this time of night, it'll take a good bit of time to get the police on the premises. I tell you what I should advise. What's that? The train is due at Bedford at 1.29. Send your wire there. There ought to be plenty of people about at Bedford, and anyhow, there'll be time to get the police to the station. Very good. I instructed them to tell you to have a special ready. Have you got one? There's an engine with steam up in the shed. We'll have all ready for you in less than ten minutes. And I tell you what, you'll have about fifty minutes before the train is due at Bedford. It's a fifty-mile run. With luck, you ought to get there pretty nearly as soon as the express does. Shall I tell them to get ready? At once. While he issued directions through a telephone to what I presume was the engine shed, I drew up a couple of telegrams. Having completed his orders, he turned to me. They're coming out of the siding now. They'll be ready in less than ten minutes. I'll see that the line's kept clear. Have you got those wires? Here's one. This is for Bedford. It ran. Arrest the Arab who is in the train due at 129. When leaving St. Pancras, he was in a third-class compartment in front wagon. He has a large bundle, which detained. He took two-thirds singles for Hull. Also detained his companion, who is dressed like a tramp. This is a young lady whom the Arab has disguised and kidnapped while in a condition of hypnotic trance. Let her have medical assistance and be taken to a hotel. All expenses will be paid on the arrival of the undersigned who is following by special train. As the Arab will probably be very violent, a sufficient force of police should be in waiting. Augustus Champnell. And this is the other. It is probably too late to be of any use at St. Albans, but send it there and also to Luton. Is Arab with companion and train which left St. Pancras at 1300? If so, do not let them get out till train reaches Bedford, where instructions are being wired for arrest. The inspector rapidly scanned them both. They ought to do your business, I should think. Come along with me, I'll have them sent at once, and we'll see if your train's ready. The train was not ready, nor was it ready within the prescribed ten minutes. There was some hitch, I fancy, about a saloon. Finally, we had to be content with an ordinary old-fashioned first-class carriage. The delay, however, was not altogether time lost. Just as the engine with its solitary coach was approaching the platform, someone came running up with an envelope in his hand. Telegram from St. Albans. I tore it open. It was brief and to the point. Arab with companion was in train when it left here, and wiring Luton. That's all right. Now, unless something wholly unforeseen takes place, we ought to have them. That unforeseen. I went forward with the inspector and the guard of our train to exchange a few final words with the driver. The inspector explained what instructions he had given. I've told the driver not to spare his coal, but to take you into Bedford within five minutes after the arrival of the express. He says he thinks that he can do it. The driver leaned over his engine, rubbing his hands with the usual oily rag. He was a short, wiry man with gray hair and a grizzled mustache, with about him that bearing of semi-humorous, frank-faced resolution which one notes about engine drivers as a class. We ought to do it, the gradients are against us, but it's a clear night and there's no wind. The only thing that will stop us will be if there's any shunting on the road, 
or any luggage trains. Of course, if we are blocked, we are blocked, but the inspector says he'll clear the way for us. Yes, said the inspector. I'll clear the way. I've wired down the road already. Atherton broke in. Driver, if you get us into Bedford within five minutes of the arrival of the mail, there'll be a five-pound note to divide between your mate and you. The driver grinned. We'll get you there in time, sir, if we have to go clear through the shunters. It isn't often we get a chance of a five-pound note for a run to Bedford, and we'll do our best to earn it. The fireman waved his hand in the rear. That's right, sir, he cried. We'll have to trouble you for that five-pound note. So soon as we were clear of the station, it began to seem probable that, as the fireman put it, Atherton would be troubled. Journeying in a train which consists of a single carriage attached to an engine, which is flying at topmost speed, is a very different business from being an occupant of an ordinary train, which is traveling at ordinary express rates. I had discovered that for myself before. That night, it was impressed on me more than ever. A tyro, or even a nervous season, might have been excused for expecting at every moment we were going to be derailed. It was hard to believe that the carriage had any springs. It rocked and swung and jogged and jolted. Of smooth traveling, we had none. Talking was out of the question, and for that I personally was grateful. Quite apart from the difficulty we experienced in keeping our seats, and when every moment our position was being altered, and we were jerked backwards and forwards, up and down, this way and that, that was a business which required care. The noise was deafening. It was as though we were being pursued by a legion of shrieking, bellowing, raging demons. George! shrieked Atherton. He does mean to earn that fiber. I hope I'll be alive to pay him. He was only at the other end of the carriage, but, though I could see by the distortion of his visage, that he was shouting at the top of his voice, and he has a voice. I only caught here and there a word or two of what he was saying. I had to make sense of the whole. Lessingham's contortions were a study. Few of that large multitude of persons who are acquainted with him only by means of the portraits which have appeared in the illustrated papers would then have recognized the rising statesman. Yet I believe that few things could have better fallen in with his mood than that wild traveling. He might have been almost shaken to pieces, but the very severity of the shaking served to divert his thoughts from the one dread topic which threatened to absorb them to the exclusion of all else beside. Then there was the tonic influence of the element of risk, the pick-me-up effect of a spice of peril. Actual danger there quite probably was none, but there very really seemed to be. And one thing was absolutely certain, that if we did come to smash while going at that speed, we should come to as everlasting smash as the heart of a man could, by any possibility, desire. It is probable that the knowledge that this was so warmed the blood in Lessingham's veins. At any rate, as to use what is in the case was simply a form of speech, I sat and watched him. It seemed to me that he was getting a firmer hold of the strength which had all but escaped him, and that with every jog and jolt he was becoming more and more of a man. On and on we went dashing, clashing, smashing, roaring, rumbling. Atherton, who had been endeavoring to peer through the window, strained his lungs again in the effort to make himself audible. Where the devil are we? Looking at my watch, I screamed back at him. It's nearly one, so I suppose we're somewhere in the neighborhood of Luton. Hello, what's the matter? That something was the matter seemed certain. 
There was a shrill whistle from the engine. In a second, we were conscious, almost too conscious, of the application of the Westinghouse brake. Of all the jolting that was ever jolted, the mere reverberation of the carriage threatened to resolve our bodies into the component parts. Feeling what we felt then helped us to realize the retardatory force which that vacuum brake must be exerting. It did not seem at all surprising that the train should have been brought to an almost instant standstill. Simultaneously, all three of us were on our feet. I let down my window, and Atherton let down his, he shouting out. I should think that Inspector's wire hasn't had its proper effect. Looks as if we're blocked, or else we've stopped at Luton. It can't be Bedford. It wasn't Bedford. So much seemed clear. Though at first from my window, I could make out nothing. I was feeling more than a trifle dazed. There was a singing in my ears. The sudden darkness was impenetrable. Then I became conscious that the guard was opening the door of his compartment. He stood on the step for a moment, seeming to hesitate. Then, with the lamp in his hand, he descended onto the line. What's the matter? I asked. Don't know, sir. Seems as if there was something on the road. What's up there? This was to the man on the engine. The fireman replied. Someone in front there's waving a red light like mad. Lucky I caught sight of him. We shouldn't have been clean on top of him in another moment. Looks as if there was something wrong. Here he comes. As my eyes grew more accustomed to the darkness, I became aware that someone was making what haste he could along the six-foot way, swinging a red light as he came. Our guard advanced to meet him, shouting as he went. What's the matter? Who's that? A voice replied. My God, is that George Hewitt? I thought you were coming right on top of us. Our guard again. What? Jim Branson, what the devil are you doing here? What's wrong? I thought you were on the 12 out. We're chasing you. Are you? Then you've caught us. Thank God for it. We're a wreck. I had already opened the carriage door. With that, we all three clambered out onto the line. End of chapter 46「I moved to the stranger who was holding the lamp. He was in official uniform. Are you the guard of the twelve o'clock out from St. Pancras? I am. Where's your train? What's happened? As for where it is, there it is, right in front of you. What's left of it? As to what's happened, why, we're wrecked. What do you mean you're wrecked? Some heavy-loaded trucks broke loose from a goods in front and came running down the hill on top of us. How long ago was it? Not ten minutes. I was just starting off down the road to the signal box, it's a good two miles away, when I saw you coming. My God, I thought there was going to be another smash. Much damage done? Seems to me as if we're all smashed up. As far as I can make out, they're matchboxed up in front. I feel as if I was all broken up inside of me. I've been in the service going on for thirty years, and this is the first accident I've been in. It was too dark to see the man's face, but judging from his tone, he was either crying or very near to it. Our guard turned and shouted back to our engine. You'd better go back to the box and let him know. All right, came echoing back. The special immediately commenced retreating, whistling continually as it went. All the countryside must have heard the engine shrieking, and all who did hear must have understood that on the line something was seriously wrong. The smash train was all in darkness. The force of the collision had put out all the carriage lamps. 
Here was a flickering candle, there the glimmer of a match. These were all the lights which shone upon the scene. People were piling up debris by the side of the line, for the purpose of making a fire, more for illumination than for warmth. Many of the passengers had succeeded in freeing themselves and were moving hither and thither about the line, but the majority appeared to be still imprisoned. The carriage doors were jammed. Without the necessary tools, it was impossible to open them. Every step we took, our ears were saluted by piteous cries. Men, women, children appealed to us for help. Open the door, sir! In the name of God, sir! Open the door! Over and over again, in all sorts of tones, with all degrees of violence, the supplication was repeated. The guards vainly endeavored to appease the, in many cases, half-frenzied creatures. All right, sir, if you will only wait a minute or two, madame. We can't get the doors open without tools. A special train's just started off to get them. If you'll only have patience, there'll be plenty of help for every one of you directly. You'll be quite safe in there if you'll only keep still. But that was just what they found it most difficult to do, keep still. In the front of the train, all was chaos. The trucks which had done the mischief, there were afterwards shown to be six of them, together with two guards' vans appeared to have been laden with bags of Portland cement. The bags had burst and everything was covered with what seemed gritty dust. The air was full of the stuff. It got into our eyes, half-blinding us. The engine of the express had turned a complete somersault. It vomited forth smoke and steam and flames. Every moment it seemed as if the woodwork of the carriages immediately behind and beneath would catch fire. The front coaches were, as the guard had put it, matchboxed. They were nothing but a heap of debris, telescoped into one another in a state of apparently inextricable confusion. It was broad daylight before access was gained to what had once been the interiors. The condition of the first third-class compartment revealed an extraordinary state of things. Scattered all over it were pieces of what looked like partially burnt rags and fragments of silk and linen. I have those fragments now. Experts have assured me that they are actually neither of silk nor linen, but of some material, animal rather than vegetable, with which they are wholly unacquainted. On the cushions and woodwork, especially on the woodwork of the floor, were huge blotches, stains of some sort. When first noticed, they were damp and gave out a most unpleasant smell. One of the pieces of woodwork is yet in my possession, with the stain still on it. Experts have pronounced upon it too, with the result that opinions are divided. Some maintain that the stain was produced by human blood, which had been subjected to a great heat and, so to speak, parboiled. Others declare that it is the blood of some wild animal, possibly of some creature of the cat species. Yet others confirm that it is not blood at all, but merely paint. While a fourth describes it as, I quote the written opinion which lies in front of me, caused apparently by a deposit of some sort of viscid matter, probably the excretion of some variety of lizard. In a corner of the carriage was the body of what seemed a young man costumed like a tramp. It was Marjorie Linden. So far as most careful search revealed, that was all the compartment contained. End of chapter 47「It is several years since I bore my part in the events which I have rapidly sketched, or I should not have felt justified in giving them publicity. Exactly how many years, for reasons which should be sufficiently obvious, I must decline to say. Marjorie Linden still lives. 
The spark of life which was left in her when she was extricated from among the debris of the wrecked express was fanned again into flame. Her restoration was, however, not merely an affair of weeks or months. It was a matter of years. I believe that even after her physical powers were completely restored, in itself a tedious task, she was for something like three years under medical supervision as a lunatic. But all that skill and money could do was done, and in course of time, the great healer, the results were entirely satisfactory. Her father is dead, and has left her in possession of the family estates. She is married to the individual who, in these pages, has been known as Paul Lessingham. Were his real name divulged, she would be recognized as the popular and universally reverenced wife of one of the greatest statesmen the age has seen. Nothing has been said to her about the fateful day on which she was, consciously or unconsciously, paraded through London in the tattered masculine habiliments of a vagabond. She herself has never once alluded to it. With the return of reason, the affair seems to have passed from her memory as wholly as if it had never been, which, although she may not know it, is not the least cause she has for thankfulness. Therefore, what actually transpired will never, in all human probability, be certainly known, and particularly what precisely occurred in the railway carriage during that dreadful moment of sudden passing from life unto death. What became of the creature who all but did her to death, who he was, if it was a he, which is extremely doubtful, whence he came, whither he went, what was the purport of his presence here? To this hour these things are puzzles. Paul Lessingham has not since been troubled by his old tormentor. He has ceased to be a haunted man. Nonetheless, he continues to have what seems to be a constitutional disrelish for the subject of beetles, nor can he himself be induced to speak of them. Should they be mentioned in a general conversation, should he be unable to immediately bring about a change of theme, he will, if possible, get up and leave the room. More, on this point he and his wife are one. The fact may not be generally known, but it is so. Also, I have reason to believe that there still are moments in which he harks back, with something like physical shrinking, to that awful nightmare of the past and in which he prays God that as it is distant from him now, so may it be kept far off from him forever. Before closing, one matter may be casually mentioned. The tale has never been told, but I have unimpeachable authority for its authenticity. During the recent expeditionary advance towards Dongola, a body of native troops which was encamped at a remote spot in the desert was aroused one night by what seemed to be the sound of a loud explosion. The next morning, at a distance of a couple of miles from the camp, a huge hole was discovered in the ground, as if blasting operations on an enormous scale had recently been carried on. In the hole itself, and round about it, were found fragments of what seemed bodies. Credible witnesses have assured me that they were bodies neither of men nor women, but of creatures of some monstrous growth. I prefer to believe, since no scientific examination of the remains took place, that these witnesses ignorantly, though innocently, erred. One thing is sure. Numerous pieces of both stone and of metal were seen, which went far to suggest that some curious subterranean building had been blown up by the force of the explosion. Especially were the proportions of molded metal which seemed to belong to what must have been an immense bronze statue. There were picked up also more than a dozen replicas in bronze of the Willem sacred sacrifice. 
that the den of demons described by Paul Lessingham had that night at last come to an end, and that these things which lay scattered here and there on that treeless plain were the evidence of its final destruction, if not a hypothesis which I should care to advance with any degree of certainty. But putting this and that together, the facts seem to point that way, and it is a consummation devoutly to be desired. By the by, Sidney Atherton has married Miss Dora Grayling. Her wealth has made him one of the richest men in England. She began, the story goes, by loving him immensely. I can answer for the fact that he has ended by loving her as much. Their devotion to each other contradicts the pessimistic nonsense which supposes that every marriage must be of necessity of failure. He continues his career of an inventor. His investigations into the subject of aerial flight, which have brought the flying machine within the range of practical politics, are on everybody's tongue. The best man at Atherton's wedding was Percy Woodville, now the Earl of Barnes. Within six months afterwards, he married one of Ms. Atherton's bridemaids. It was never certainly shown how Robert Holt came to his end. At the inquest, the coroner's jury was content to return a verdict of died of exhaustion. He lies buried in Kensal Green Cemetery under a handsome tombstone, the cost of which, had he had it in his pockets, might have indefinitely prolonged his days. It should be mentioned that that portion of this strange history, which purports to be the surprising narration of Robert Holt, was compiled from the statements which Holt made to Atherton and to Miss Linden, as she then was when a mud-stained, shattered derelict he lay at the lady's father's house. Miss Linden's contribution towards the elucidation of the mystery was written with her own hand. After her physical strength had come back to her, and while mentally... She still hovered between the darkness and the light. Her one relaxation was writing. Although she would never speak of what she had written, it was found that her theme was always the same. She confided to pen and paper what she would not speak of with her lips. She told and retold and retold again the story of her love and of her tribulation so far as it contained in the present volume. Her MSS invariably began and ended at the same point. They have all of them been destroyed, with one exception. That exception is herein placed before the reader. On the subject of the mystery of the beetle, I do not propose to pronounce a confident opinion. Atherton and I have talked it over many and many a time, and at the end we have got no farther. So far as I am personally concerned, experience has taught me that there are indeed more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy and I am quite prepared to believe that the so-called beetle, which others saw but I never, was, or is, for it cannot be certainly shown that the thing is not still existing, a creature born neither of God nor man. End of chapter 48 Recording by Anthony Wilson End of The Beetle by Richard Marsh